0: Good morning everybody. It's good to see all y'all here. We still got a few more that are trickling in and filling up their coffee mugs and stuff. I'm gonna move move to center here. So we, we've been in a section within Deuteronomy, which is chapters nine through eleven. And these, this is a section that comes just on the other side of the Shema of loving God with all your heart, and it functions as a, a warning against self-righteousness. And the way this section works, we started to look at it uh, last week, is that the Lord explains to the Israelites, when you enter into the land, don't say it's because of my righteousness that I ended up here in the land, so he warns them against self-righteousness. Tells them the reason you shouldn't be self-righteous is because, you know, remember you guys' track record. You're stiff-necked, you're rebellious. Uh, you're not. You're not a righteous people in and of yourselves. And then the response to well, what do you do then? Well, the response to not being self-righteous is to be righteous, which might sound kind of funny to your ears at first but you see what's missing there is self self is gone the the righteousness is coming from somewhere else that isn't self and that's tied up in this phrase where Moses is telling them in his sermon to circumcise your hearts which he's pointing out that you don't have the righteousness in you to do this Uh, you you the problem is that you don't have a circumcised heart and I'm commanding you to do something that you can't do which is, you know, leading them toward his conclusion at the end of the book, which is telling them, you know, the, the Lord will circumcise your hearts. It, he, he's going to complete in you what he has commanded you to do in your place and for you. Now, when we talk about this concept of self-righteousness, there's a, a word that we don't find in the Bible that we use ourselves it starts with an L nobody likes to hear it or be called it the dirty L word legalist now that's a word that's you know it's not in scripture so we can't like look up you know the Hebrew or Greek word and then say well it just means this you know it's it's our word and we we give definition to it so it ends up getting used in a lot of different ways if you guys were to try to define legalism what is it what is Legalism, uh, strict adherence to the law under well, some other things that come, come to mind when you think about trying to define what, what is legalism. Yeah, so either it's, you know, your relationship to God is through his law, either you earn salvation through it or uh, you're able to, to gain some sort of favor with him by keeping uh, certain rules. One way that this comes up is, well, in back in Deuteronomy 9-4 as we looked at that, Moses is warning them, when you get into the land, don't say it's because of our righteousness. So one way you can look at legalism is it it is this, you know, thinking and attitude that says it's because of how I live that God blesses me. It's because of the things that I do that I get blessings from God. Yeah, it's works-based rather than, you know, faith and grace-based. Yeah, uh, there's also that other side in Romans 6 where they say, okay, so salvation isn't of works, but it's of grace. So the more that I sin, the more that God will show his grace to me. So I'll actually make God look more gracious by sinning more. They he says, so should we go on sinning <laughs> that grace may abound? Right? And that's, that's the other side of legalism. It says, it doesn't matter how I live. God is still going to bless me. And I think that's where this, uh, it gets a little bit more complex in your mind because you see what the the complexity of legalism is. It either says uh, I obey the law or I don't obey the law. It does both of those. Yeah, legalism isn't necessarily tied to God's law, but it's tied to man making up laws himself. Uh, it's through distorting this relationship. To, you don't look at, you know, God's law and say, well, law is legalistic in the Bible. Uh, it, it's not. God's law is not legalistic, but man can distort his relationship to God through the law or making up other laws or misunderstanding uh the law. Uh, one of the ways that comes out, some people say, well, it's, it's not about religion, but it's about a relationship with Christ, which what they're saying, that word religion just means devotion to God. So they're saying, well, it's not about devotion to God. It's just about a relationship with Christ. And what they conclude is, therefore, you know, I, I don't need to together with the church. I don't really need other believers in my life. Just that I have this personal relationship with God is enough. It doesn't matter if I obey him, any of these sort of things that's typically how that phrase gets used which I think Paul rebukes that concept when he addresses Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 5 he says they they have an appearance of godliness but they deny the power of it which the idea behind that is you know it's something that it, it looks godly it sounds godly but you don't actually see the power of a life that's being transformed by God's word Yeah. versus a humility would worship the one that's giving you everything so I don't know if they keep talking about that the focus can really become self and that I'm able to do this or to obtain something versus trusting yeah exactly you see legalism is self-worship it is uh, self-righteousness it's pride you know it's all of these sort of concepts as we've been talking about they're all related. You also see this as early on in scripture as Genesis chapter 3 and Eve thought you know God wouldn't restrict me from doing something that's desirable uh, because he's a God of love and not judgment. You see there's this sort of distortion of who God is within legalism. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that particular thing. Uh But what I want to give you is a legalism, a a definition. What is legalism? Legalism separates the law of God from the character of God. How would you sum up God's character in, in one word that starts with a G and ends with Ud? Kind of narrowed in your options there. So God's character is good, therefore his law is good. You know, God is the good standard that everybody is to, to live by and to, to image, therefore his, his law instruction is good. You remember back in Genesis 3, the Satan sought to separate the law of God and the character of God when he asked Eve, you know, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, you know, isn't he restrictive? Doesn't he hold out on good things from you? You know, he's challenging his good character in that. And then he totally contradicts God's law after questioning his character. in Genesis 3, 5, he says, you will not surely die. And I said, God's law isn't so good that he would actually carry it out. Like when he says you will surely die, he doesn't really mean that. He won't actually cause you to die if you do this. He says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you think this is like when you go to buy a, a car, that's actually a lemon. Like it, it looks like a, a promotion, you know, but it's actually a demotion. You know, it looks like an upgrade, but it's actually a downgrade. And that's exactly what Satan had done here, that their eyes being opened and knowing good and evil was not an upgrade in life. It was not a promotion, it was a, a demotion. And so the first statement that Satan makes, it's it's an attack on the goodness of God's law, and the second is on the, the goodness of his character. you see that? He's separating those things out and questioning and contradicting God's goodness. Which, perhaps we understand this in how the word legalism is often used. People say, well, you're being legalistic, which what they often mean by that is, like, you're being restrictive. And all you said was, like, I just think I, sh- I, I want to go to church rather than go watch this movie. Like, oh, you're so legalistic. And obviously you recognize something's off there, but usually the people that are the most concerned about legalism are the legalist. So this is, this is the irony. You can be legalistic about not being legalistic. That, and that's part of why this thing is so tricky to discern in ourselves. Now, going back to the example of, Eve in the garden you can see that there was this element in which she was a legalist who saw God only as a lawgiver who held out on good gifts it's like that's all he is as a lawgiver and he's restrictive and he holds out on on good things but there's this other side of legalism that sometimes we refer to it as uh, antinomianism people say you know following God's law doesn't matter they're the anti-law sort of people but you see, at the same time, Eve was also that. Uh, she was antinomian because she thought following God's law wasn't that good. So what happened in the garden was Satan made a divorce between God's good will and his good character. She fell to see that God was actually good in his generosity. I mean, you think about it. You're, uh, everything in all of creation, you're allowed to enjoy except one thing. And the only thing you're not to do with it is eat it. Like you, you could punch it, you could kick it, you could throw it, you just couldn't eat it. You, I guess you could feed it to other animals too or something, it just wasn't for you. But you had everything else on the entire planet to enjoy. Uh, God wasn't being tight-fisted with his gifts towards Adam and Eve. So what legalism does, it, it separates the law of God from the character of God. And what Eve saw was part of God's law, but she lost sight of God himself. because you remember, she, she actually misquotes uh, what the command was, and Adam should have interjected instead of being a passive Adam and done something about it, but he he failed to do that. As you know, Christianity is not law-based. Ultimately, it's It's God-based, and God's good law comes from his good character, and you can't separate those two from one another. You can't separate uh, his instruction from his character, and I think part of what's also kind of tricky about studying this and thinking it through is people usually mishear the word law. They think that it's rules, but the, the word law doesn't mean rules, it means instruction, which The first five books of the Bible, the book of the law is the book of instruction. It's the foundational instruction for the rest of the Bible. The Torah, that's the word that we translate as law. It it means instruction. So when you look at the Hebrew scriptures, you have the the law Torah instruction. They have the prophets and what, what did the prophets do? They preached and prayed their Bible and their Bible was the book of Moses. And then that other section, the writings, we have books like the Psalms and Proverbs. That's a book about it enjoying the book of the law. It was enjoying God's instruction. But you see his instruction isn't something that's restrictive or legalistic, but it's something that, that gives freedom. It's something that gives joy. It's something to be enjoyed Sinclair Ferguson in his book, The Whole Christ, as he addresses this sort of issue of legalism, he says, the legalism that distorts grace is also the legalism that distorts law from its God-given character and function, and beneath that has distorted the character of the God who gave it. Now, you think about this, you can have a the Christian who professes to, to know God but doesn't actually possess a, a relationship with them because they're just, they're merely a legalist. They're, they're just, you know, you might just call them a religious person, but they're not truly devoted to God. And the subtle legalists, they'll respond to the word of God by saying, well, I, I'm not perfect, but I do my best. You hear that in their attitude. I'm not perfect, but I do my best. You see how they think about their relationship to God is the things that they do. So they recognize their imperfection, but they say, but I do. It doesn't say, but he is or he has done. It's I do my best. When Paul in the epistle to the Galatians address this, he confronted this idea that if you, if you think that salvation is even part of you keeping law, he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Uh, why, why do you need a savior who justifies sinners when you think you already do that for yourself? And also to understand that the law doesn't come to us in, in parts, the, the law isn't something that can be divided where you think, well, yeah, maybe Jesus keeps those parts, but I have to keep these other parts. It comes as a whole package. No biblical author ever understands the, the law being divided out, saying, so say, well, I don't have to keep those, but I can keep these, and I can modify them to make it sound like they're doable, and to calm my conscience and convince myself that I'm actually keeping them, which is exactly what the Pharisees would do. They'd say, well, we don't have to keep those ones, but we do have to keep these ones, but Okay, we don't really do them totally how we're supposed to do them. We kind of do it like this, which is okay because actually, if you modify what the law actually means, then I'm actually right in what I'm doing. Which is kind of like kids arguing over the rules in a board game and stuff like that to like get the upper hand. And it's like th- that's not even a rule, and it happens. So the the answer to recognizing that you are sinful, the, the response that you're to, to give that, to that is not try harder. What, what should be our response when we're confronted with our sinfulness? Yeah, it's Christ, it's repent and believe. And repenting, you're, you're turning away from the things that, you're turning away from trying harder. You're turning to trusting in Christ. You're believing he is my righteousness. Now, it's possible to have Christian thinking and legalistic feelings. Now, I want you to think about that because I think legalism is ultimately detected in how you feel in your relationship toward God. You can have Christian thinking and legalistic feelings. Like I said, the the legalists, when they hear the gospel, they, they say, Well, I know that I failed somehow. And I know that I must try harder. But the gospel teaches us, Galatians 2.16, that we know that a person is not justified by works. Nobody writes their relationship with God by something that they do. Uh, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So what is it that we have faith in exactly? You know, if we don't have faith in I can make this right, then our faith is he makes this right. You know, he has done something to make this right. Paul goes on, so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So a very simple way to think about the difference between Legalism and biblical Christianity is legalism. It starts with you down here and you look at your relationship to God through his law somehow. I'm going to run out of room here. So here's legalism right here. You see you and the way that I relate to God is God's law. You, you say, I keep it. Therefore, I'm okay with God, or I don't keep it and His grace abounds anyway, and I just magnify how great He is by Him forgiving somebody as rotten as me. Both of those are legalism. What do you think is the correct way to see our relationship to God if it's not through law? Yeah, somebody be bold. It's by grace through faith in Christ alone, which is a very different attitude. You know, and when we look at this, you know, idea, of, you know, I, I deserve death, I lack righteousness. We don't say, well, okay, I'll, I'll try harder at law keeping. And you say, well, Christ did the law keeping for me. Uh, he died for the ungodly and I can be counted righteous in him. You know, how was our forefather Abraham? Was he righteous because of he got circumcised? I mean, which came first, that God said that he was counted righteous because he believed in him or he was circumcised? Yeah, was it his faith came first. You know, it was... He, he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. And then later on down the road, he was circumcised and there was the almost sacrifice of his son Isaac and all of those other things happened. But the reason that he walked with God was not to get a relationship with him. He didn't say, okay, I'll do the stuff that you say so that I can work my way up to you. Saying, I already have this relationship with you, so I'm going to walk with you. Those are two very different sort of things I wanted to continue to kind of elaborate on this concept as we return back to Deuteronomy 10 12 we're going to Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 12 and Moses in his sermon here moves from after warning them to to not be self-righteous to he commands them to be righteous to circumcise their hearts. So let's start reading through this and we'll discuss what it is to be righteous. So now, Israel, what does Yahweh your God ask from you? But to fear Yahweh your God, to walk in all his ways and love him, and to serve Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of Yahweh and his statues, which I am commanding you to, today for your good behold to yahweh your god belong heaven and the highest heavens the earth and all that is in it yet on your fathers did yahweh set his affection to love them and he chose their seed after them even you above all peoples as it is this day so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer For Yahweh your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the fearsome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows love for the sojourner by giving him food and clothing. So show love for the sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Yahweh your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and to him you shall cling, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise, and he is your God who has done these great and fearsome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now Yahweh your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments all your days. So know this day that I am not speaking with your sons who have not known and who have not seen the discipline of Yahweh your God, his greatness, his strong hand, and his outstretched arm, and his signs and his works which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land, and what he did to Egypt's army, to its horses and its chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea to engulf them while they were pursuing you. And Yahweh made them perish utterly. And what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the son of Reuben, when the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them among all Israel. But your own eyes have seen all the great work of Yahweh, which he did, You shall therefore keep every commandment which I am commanding you today, so that you may be strong and go in and possess the land into which you are about to cross, to possess it, so that you may prolong your days on the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give to them and to their seed, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land into which you are entering to possess it is not like the land of Egypt from which you came where you used to sow your seed and water it with your foot like a vegetable garden. But the land into which you're about to cross to possess it, a land of hills and valleys, drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which Yahweh your God cares. The eyes of Yahweh your God are always on it, from the beginning even to the end of the year. And it will be that if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul, that I, Yahweh, will give the rain for your land and its season, the early and the late rains, that you may gather in your grain and your new wine and your oil. And I will give grass and your fields for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Beware lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. And the anger of Yahweh be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which Yahweh is giving you. You shall therefore place these words of mine on your heart and on your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and you shall be as phylacteries, they shall be as phylacteries between your eyes. And you shall teach them to your sons, speaking of them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates so that your days and days of your sons may be multiplied on the land which Yahweh swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens remain above the earth. For if you are careful to keep this entire commandment, which I am commanding you to do, to love Yahweh your God, to walk in his ways and to cling to him. Then Yahweh will dispossess all these nations from before you, and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your border will be from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates. As far as the Western Sea, no man will be able to stand before you Yahweh your God will put the dread of you and the fear of you on all the land on which you set foot as he has spoken to you. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God, which I am commanding you today, and the curse... If you do not listen to the commandments of Yahweh your God, but turn aside from the way which I am commanding you today by walking after other gods which you have not known, and it will be when Yahweh your God brings you into the land where you are entering to possess it, that you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. Are they not across the Jordan, west of the way toward the sunset in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oaks of Morah? For you are about to cross the Jordan to go in to possess the land which Yahweh your God is giving you, and you shall possess it and live in it. And you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the judgments which I am setting before you today. Let's pray as we continue our study. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us understanding from it, that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us guidance and understanding who you are and your character and understanding your plan throughout the ages and how this text would teach us about you and how to live for you. We pray that you would give us freedom from the bondage of sin knowing that indeed you have but you would give us a greater appetite for walking in you and following you and that you would lessen our desire to be given to sin and you would strengthen our desire to be devoted to you to fear you and to walk with you to love you to serve you and to keep all the things that you have commanded us for the glory of your name and the joy of your people. Amen. So, if you're not supposed to be self-righteous because you're a rebellious, stiff-necked sort of person, well, then, then what does God require of you? If it's not to just give it the old college try and to do your best at keeping the great command of loving God with all you are, then what does He ask of you? Well, we saw in chapter 10 verse 12 what he requires is to fear him to fear him as one does a king to recognize the great power that he has to show him due honor but also to walk with him to walk in the principles to show a path of obedience that walks in him out of that fearful respect for him but also as we know that this is the commandment, in singular, the you know, the commandment is the Shema, which is to to love the Lord your God with it, everything that's inside of you, everything that goes from the inside to the outside of you, and everything that God has placed around you. And this word love, as we have talked about, it's a, a synonym with the word choose. So what it means to, to love God is not to always have these uh, Feelings for him, or an affinity for him, or affections for him, but it's to choose him. Uh, e- even when it, your feelings are backwards towards him, uh, you you choose him. You walk with him, or the way that Jesus put it, you you deny yourself and you take up your cross and you follow him. And that loving him and choosing him works itself out in serving him with a, a total devotion. It's a devotion that's undivided. It wouldn't be divided, you know, for Israel with other gods or other ideas and teachings of the nations. They were to be servants of God only, and they were to be undistracted in that. They were to remove anything that would cause them to be divided in their devotion and anything that would cause them to be distracted in it, and that would help them and the next reality of keeping his commandments, to keep everything commanded, everything expected of them, and these five verbs you could look at as a, as a musical chord, they're all complementing and embellishing one another, and five note chords actually sound really cool. I had to, I sat down on my guitar and I thought, what well, a five note chord, this is hard to do, but I, I played a C major seven, add nine, sharp eleven, for you musicians that want to and I'd drop the fifth because that'd be six notes and that would be crazy to try to play on a guitar. C major seven, add nine, stripe 11, if you're taking notes. <laughs> when it comes to thinking about how we worship God, that it's not something that we define. You, know, you see, God is defining this for his people. He says, these are the things that you do. He, he doesn't say, well, what, what, what do you guys like? <laughs> you know, what, what, what would you like to do? Our worship doesn't begin with thinking about what we like. Uh, it doesn't even begin with thinking, well, what, what would get more unchurched people to come here? Or what would get the person who's just an attender to become a member? Uh, or even to start in our worship, well, how do we grow the church and we get more people in the seats? Or uh, how do we get more people involved in doing things? Well, our worship doesn't begin with asking those questions. Our worship begins with, what does our Lord ask of us? What does he want? What has he commanded us to do? What does he require of us? Well, as we had talked about in Deuteronomy 6 through 8, which is the section on the the Shema of the "Here, O Israel, that they were to understand that their God is one, which is why their love for him was to be undivided and they were to love him with everything that they that that they are and the focus of that section as we talked about it was fearing and loving God they were to have a wholehearted commitment to him and undiluted allegiance to him and that's what the idea is when it says by him you shall swear it's like when you say God I, I I'm devoted to you you You're swearing allegiance to him. You're you're pledging allegiance and you have a life that shows that you're keeping that. That's what it means to swear by him. And these requirements that God puts on his people, he doesn't say, well, I, I have given these to you so that you would be miserable and think that I'm restrictive and holding out on all these other fun things that you could be doing. But instead what he says, he says, this is for your good. Which, you know how in uh, the immaturity of a person, they think, well, this, you know, it is not good for me to have broccoli with salt, and pepper, and lemon juice on it. But it is. It's is so good for you. But it's, it's an acquired taste that comes along later in life. And, it, and it's like that when you're trying to, to put off your old baby food ways and to move into enjoying the other great and good things that God has given us in life. He's saying these, these requirements are for your good. It's to give you the best things, ultimately. Here we're reminded that we, we cannot and we should not divorce God's law from God's character, which is what legalism is. We don't say, well, his law isn't good because he isn't good, or because he isn't good, he hasn't given us good instruction. But rather we understand both of these are good. God's character is good. His law is good. But he's also good for us. God is good for us. His instruction is good for us. His good character through his good law should never be questioned or contradicted. And the reality is we're, we're tempted to doubt it. And we would never say it like this. We would never say, God, I don't think that you're good. But it often happens when we have these circumstances and we say, this is bad. It's like, well, who gave you this? God gave you this. And I remember a, a brother was real helpful to me one night. We were fellowshipping, and he said he, he, he learned to stop saying of circumstances that he thought were bad. And instead of saying, well, this is bad, he started saying, well, this is hard. But God is good, and he's doing good through this to conform me to the image of Christ, which is a very different perspective on providence, which are what God provides for you in life. He's provided that you live where you live at this place and time, with the relationships you have, with the money you have, the, the health you have, all of these sort of things, and what helps our heart in those moments when we're tempted to think, this is bad as to remember, no, God is good, and for those who love him he he can only work good. This can only work out for my sanctification. well, as you as we went into chapter eleven, reading through there, you see there there was a a passing grade to this test that God would give his people and and a failing grade in eleven thirteen he said. You know, if you faithfully obey the commands that I'm giving you to, today to, to love Yahweh your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, well, you'll know that I've evaluated you as passing by me giving you rain on your land. And you'll be able to have the result of gathering in grains and new wine and oil and you'll have grass for your cattle and all these things. But he says, you know, if you fail, and he says, be careful, be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away, and worship other gods and bow down to them, which is a reminder that you know our our devotion to God doesn't happen by default. Uh, you have to be careful to do it. You you have to have a plan and how you're going to to be working that out. You know, I here of people in the, their devotional plan one of the things they do besides just reading scriptures they keep something like a heart journal so in the morning they get up and they just write you know how am I feeling today what are the things that I'm thinking about and they just try to have themselves exposed there before God as they come to read from his words so they understand this is where my heart's at And sometimes you recognize it's in a good place or sometimes you recognize it's not where it should be. But what is it in God's word that's going to to help turn my heart? I'm gonna have to be careful not only to be diligent and regularly being in meditation upon God's word and and prayer, but I have to be able to, to find the things that are gonna help me with the struggle that I'm having now. Be careful or... He says, you will be enticed. It's a guarantee. If you're not careful, you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. And for Israel, he says, you'll, you'll know my evaluation of what's going on in your life because my angle will burn against you. I'll shut the heavens and it won't rain. And then you won't have grain and you won't have grass, grass and you won't have cattle that's able to eat it. We're reminded here of God's, love his electing choice of a people that yeah I, we, we read some of the greatest descriptions of God in all of scripture in this section that we just read and we read of his unconditional electing love of a people he said you know even though he he owns the heaven and the highest heavens and he owns absolutely everything and he chose you guys <laughs> It, sh- it sh- should have been a very humbling sort of thing for Israel, but he recognized their propensity was to think, well, the reason we're in the land is because, well, everybody knows how many push-ups I can do, you know? The reason that they were in the land wasn't because they were the most numerous people, wasn't because they were the strongest people, wasn't because they were the most moral people. Uh, they They were anything but. They were... A, a small group of immoral people. He says, but God chose to set his love on them. And as we've talked about this, you know, love and choosing are synonymous. To, to choose is to love and to love is to choose. And what's being communicated here is if God has loved you and chosen you like this, you should love him and choose him like this. With an undiluted sort of love, an undistracted sort of love, and this brings you to a point in the, you know, hearing this sermon, where I'm talking about Moses' sermon. You're just in a discipleship training class. I'll do a sermon later, which means you're you're uh, permitted to ask questions or you interrupt, which wouldn't be interrupting. It would just be part of how this class works. So. Feel free to, to interrupt and ask questions along the way. But this is how Moses, he, he builds to this point where the, you know, the listeners say, well, what, what do we do then? How can we you know, have these good results? How can we enjoy these blessings? And he says, circumcise your hearts. do you think about it? You're reading your Bible in order from Genesis to Deuteronomy and you're hearing this for the first time. This sounds super weird, Now you think with this metaphor here, none of the men who are standing before Moses at this moment had ever been circumcised. They're they're the children of the rebellious generation who who did not obey Yahweh at all, and so they weren't. They're they're actually they're not going to get circumcised until we get to Joshua chapter five, and it'll say what I just told you. It's like they were of the rebellious generations, and their parents didn't. Obey them, and that's why they're all circumcised. They had to get circumcised when they were much older. But the picture, the picture here is really ironic because their fathers who came out of Egypt, you know, they had apparently all been circumcised externally when they had celebrated the first Passover. But their faithlessness proved that it was only an external act. That's all that it was, but this next generation, remember when we went through the book of Numbers, we saw there was the faithless generation, and you see this faithful generation, who you have Phinehas as priest, who was zealous for the righteousness of Yahweh. That people, this next generation, this new generation, the people that are standing before Moses right now, they're all physically uncircumcised, but because they had been faithful to, to Yahweh, even in face of the apostasy that took place of at Baal Peor, they actually had proved themselves to be of circumcised heart. So there's people among them who had, it's like, well, why were they different than the people? There were people that externally did what God said, but now you have people who externally hadn't done what He had said yet, but internally they had. And that changed everything about how they lived. So we see here this command to circumcise your hearts. It it wasn't about the external circumcision, which was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, but it was referring to something that's internal and spiritual. And that sign of the Abrahamic covenant was a a teaching tool toward that to remind them that this is what you need. Like it talks about in Romans 2, when it's it's specifically addressing Jews, he says, you know, a Jew isn't just merely one outwardly, but inwardly, the whole point of your nation was to be this people who has a, a love for God. And so he tells them, this is how you can love God with all your heart. Circumcise your heart. Now, what's the problem here? Yeah, you can't do it. It's, it's talking about something that you, you cannot see it and you, you cannot touch it. It's immaterial. Like well, how how do you do that? And he says, "There, there's this. So here's the problem: you you can't circumcise your heart and you're self-righteous. But God wants you to be righteous and circumcise your heart. So that's the solution. But the solution with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So Moses, he recognizes the problem." And he's pointing out the problem to them, which is exactly what the law is intended to do. It's pointing out the problem. But he's also telling them of the solution later on. This is Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. I often remind you of this because it would be terrible for me to leave this as a cliffhanger for weeks and weeks and weeks. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. It says, moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart. I imagine that, you know, Dave keeps preaching this sermon and telling you to do something that's totally impossible, and you're just in despair and like, I don't know how this is going to work. This is bad. And finally, at the end, he says, God's going to do it for you. You're like, yeah. <laughs> Moreover, Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed to love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live which is the whole point of the law, it's all pointing toward this, but it's all pointing towards, well, who's the one who actually keeps all the commandments? Yeah, it's, it's Jesus, it's God himself. So he makes this covenant that there's two sides to it, and he graciously ends up keeping their side for them. This also then directs the uh, the person who has come to know God, and there's these key priorities. If they have a heart that truly loves God, they live in light of who He is, which means they love the sojourner. You know, if you love God, you're gonna love your neighbor, which involves the sojourner. So, well, what what motivates the you know the Israelite to love another sojourner? He says, such were all of you. <laughs> it, Remember, you were once a sojourner, but why aren't you a sojourner anymore? God was gracious to you. It wasn't because of something that that you did. It was the grace of God that changed everything about you and your life. When you look at the end of chapter 10 and verses 21 and 22, we don't want to overlook that the the emphasis isn't on you you guys, but it's on he and, and him. It says, he is your praise and he is your God who has done these great and fearsome things for you which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now Yahweh, your God, has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The reason these things went forward wasn't because you guys were so good at keeping the Mosaic Covenant. But the reason it's gone forward is because I'm keeping my promise in the Abrahamic Covenant. We should never think in the Christian life that, well, if I do X, Y, and Z, oh, yes, sir, Andrew. Well, you did, but it's okay. I said that you could, I gave you permission. Yeah, well, we will, we'll go into that in more detail when we, we get to that section towards the end of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 28, it picks up and goes through the blessings, the curses and the, the restoration. But you're, you're correct to see that it's specific for this nation, you know, God emphasizes with them, you know, who else has a God like this? It, you know, has, has this ever happened to any other nation ever? Is there any nation that has been given laws as righteous as this? So you see it, it's specific, to Israel and that, but the way that the the blessing and the curses end up functioning is like a spiritual barometer for the the corporate entity of Israel. So you see, when uh, they're obeying and things are going well, it's raining. When they're not doing well, it's not raining. And so if you keep up with those list of things, actually the the uh, foundation of what all is in Leviticus 26, which we went through, but it's like anytime you see any of the, the blessings happening, you're like, man, Solomon is doing pretty good right now and things are going well. But then when things take a turn for the worst, and there's disobedience, like you could think back even just to the fall of David, you know, once there was, you know, sin in him as the king representative of all the people, then you start seeing the curses happening and you see them, you know, especially unfold in Jeremiah in Lamentations which will kind of totally change how you hear that phrase, great is thy faithfulness. Because what Jeremiah is lamenting there, he says, you remember back in Leviticus 26 when God said, if you turned from him, you would eat your own children? He says, you're doing it now. He's faithful. But he's also reminding at the same time, he's also going to be faithful to bring the restoration that he's promised. He's promised to be bring the blessing. Uh, you are going to be in exile for 70 years, but it's only going to be 70 years. so he's confronting the false prophets then who are just saying peace peace when there there is no peace and that it won't be 70 years long and i'm getting ahead of myself i'm only in deuteronomy but good questions you know keep bringing those it'll it'll help you know it'll help us when we get you know to the the section on the blessing and the and the curse and perhaps you know help me to to help you to clarify some things Yes, ma'am. That's one of those things that I think we, we can't conclude if what's happening in Israel is God's punishment necessarily. Like we, we recognize that uh, when you move on in your Bible that, that God doesn't cancel his plan with, with Israel uh, that's a, an issue that's brought up with the Romans that Paul addresses, because in, in Romans chapter eight, he says, you know, what, what, what can separate us from the love of God? And you have some of the Romans thinking, well, being a Jew could do it. He said, look, they, they crucified the Christ and what do they have to do with them anymore? And so Paul says, don't think that at all. He says, being a Jew can't separate you from God. Even he said, I would, I would go to hell for my own brethren. God hasn't canceled his calling with them. The the, the calling of Israel is irrevocable. And he also says, and by the way, people, I'm a Jew. (laughs) So don't think being a Jew can cut you off from God or he's canceled his plans. But he says, uh, because of their disobedience, now we live in the time of the Gentiles where Gentiles are grafted into the Abrahamic blessing. But it doesn't mean that he just dropped everything uh, from Israel or that he just, Magically turned you into an Israelite. You know, you still stayed as you are, but you join in the blessing and the values that that nation was supposed to have. And so, today, we write, we see the nation of Israel is still on the map, but there are some people that you don't read about from the ancient Near East that aren't around, like Gergeshites, Parasites. Yeah, I mean, you look for them and you're like, you check their Facebook status thing. I know you don't do that. I don't do that either, but you won't find one, but you will find an Israelite. It's like, well, why is that? Why, why are all the other ones gone, but only, only the Israelites are still around? It's like, well, God's keeping his promise. They're, they're still his chosen people, but being chosen doesn't mean that they're the most holy or obedient people. And you see that as you keep from, from Exodus onward, he calls them, you know, loved and chosen you're like, man, these people are wretched, you know? And then even after, like, the golden calf incident, he still refers to them as loved and and chosen. Like, well, how can this be? It's like, well, he, he has a plan for that nation to bring blessing to, to all nations, and that's, you know, fulfilled in Christ ultimately. In Isaiah, the prophet, it starts referring to this singular individual as Israel it starts calling the suffering servant is Israel and so he says to the nation he says you know all of of you are blind and deaf but this Israel he can see and he can hear and he can open your eyes and so when he shows up in the gospels there's a sense in which we see you know this is what Israel was always supposed to be but he's being it for them to make them what they should be and we talk about this uh, theological concept as corporate solidarity or there's the, the one who represents the many. See, Christ is representing all his people and what they're supposed to be but then he also brings them into that family and transforms them into what they're supposed to be as well. You look like you have a question. You? All right. Yeah, Corey. Yeah, so Corey's asking about, you know, sojourners and that relationship to Israel. Israel functioned as a, you know, come and see our God. You know, they're traveling around in the wilderness and all the people are living in the mountains. It's a small place. They can see what's going on. When you have a ginormous pillar of fire, pillar of cloud, like people take notice of stuff like that. And they're like, what is going on with these people? But they see that their worship is like their worship, but it's different. You know they're not trying to move toward and earn something with their God, but their God's coming toward them instead. But they also recognize, and He's coming for us, so we got to stop these people. So the evangelistic mission of Israel as a nation at this point, and uh, you know, in the first Testament, it's for the nations to come and see. And so you'd have a sojourner or a foreigner. So a sojourner would be somebody who's just passing through they're not in, intending to become a part of the nation of Israel he says there, there's a way that you're to to treat that person who's temporarily going to be among you and he also says but there's also the foreigner that might want to become a citizen he says the the law is going to apply the same they're, they will also have to be circumcised I'm not going to have you know different requirements or different festivals than them to where it's like, well, you guys have to, you guys celebrate the Passover, but they can't be at the table with you. So they'll also have to join in everything that your nation is to be about as well. But at this time, in their infancy, you think about this with you know, a kid. You, you, you have a little kid, and you don't want them to hang around you know, some other kid that's a bad influence. It's like when politics and science hang out. You know, they, they always come back with some like, really corrupt stuff. That's a whole nother issue. But anyways, the, God's protecting, you know, his, his infant people from, you know, the bad kids in the neighborhood. And so he's, he, he won't even let them eat the same food as those other kids. And it's like, well, what do you mean we can't have peanut butter and jelly? Is it like unhealthy or something? It's like, no, it's fine to eat peanut butter and jelly, but those kids eat it, and I don't want you to be around the bad kids eating that food. And if you can't eat that food, it's going to be harder for you to hang out, because when you're playing, you get hungry and stuff like that. So... There's that sort of protective element with Israel and why they weren't a go-and-tell sort of ministry yet, and, which is what happens with the church. You know, we're not we're not simply a, a come-and-see sort of entity, but we're a, a, a scattered seed that's then re, regathered in our Sunday morning gathering, but we always scatter to go out and tell, which is... Something that happens in the New Testament involving the New Testament church. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, great, great questions. It's not my fault I didn't conclude today, by the way, <laughs> but that's okay. It's good fellowship, and I, I know when you, once you get into these things, the, the answer to one question brings up three other questions in your mind, and I don't want to just leave you with those questions. Uh, this is a, an opportunity for us to study those things and to, to look to, to God's word together because ultimately we want you know his answers. We want his worldview. And the things we're studying now help us to understand things that are going on today and how we can honor him and obey him. So I'll just put a mark in my notes to pick up there. I'll close us in prayer. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for the excitement of knowing you and studying your word, and we pray that it would be the preoccupation of our heart to, to know you and to want to know how your plan's going to work out in history so that it would increase our hope in you so that it would develop in us a greater holiness of life that we would honor you and live for you more faithfully. We thank you that you have given us these circumcised hearts which you require that love you and seek to follow you. I Pray that you would grow that in us even more. And we thank you for our study. We pray that you would help us and our time together, the things that we are curious about to find your answer from your word ultimately, so that you would be honored among us and glorified to the maximum level that fallen people like us can give you glory. You are our praise and we praise you. Amen.